Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. We pick it. Well, we get somebody on the. Have we got anybody on this? Can't get the staff these days. We're picking up uh, our studies in in the Gospel of Luke. We've managed to sort of skip um, a couple of verses, which you might like to go back and look at (laughs) for yourself. I don't know why. I'm glad I wasn't asked to speak on them anyway. Um, So we're we're picking it up at Luke chapter 11, uh, just verses 29 to 32, the sign of Jonah, and what I've said is other lessons. Now, according to Matthew, which is the parallel passage in chapter 12 of Matthew, it was some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who demanded a sign. Luke tells us that that, uh, Jesus said that it was something uh, that more generally characterised his contemporaries. What did they want? They'd witnessed Jesus carry out a whole range of miracles, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, even raising the dead. What more did they want? What is this sign that they're asking for? Maybe they're asking for what they would regard as a heavenly sign rather than an earthly sign. I'm not quite clear what what the difference is. Um, About three centuries later, the Roman emperor Constantine claimed that he saw a cross in the sky, and the words, in this sign, conquer. And he committed himself to following the Christian faith. Um, There's a very interesting episode later in in Luke's Gospel, uh, where Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and Pilate sends him to King Herod, because he came from Galilee. And it says that Herod hoped to see Jesus perform a sign of some sort but it doesn't say what sort of sign he got in mind. If, of course, you've uh, uh, seen the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber knows what it was. It was walk across my swimming pool. <laughs> now, in our passage today, the only sign that Jesus is prepared to offer is the sign of Jonah. He says that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. I wonder what he meant. Let's just read those two verses to start with. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, I guess we all know the story of Jonah, but in case you don't... (laughs) Or just to remind you, let me summarise. Jonah was a prophet, and God told him to go and preach uh, to the inhabitants of the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, because they were so wicked. But Jonah didn't want them to hear the message of judgement to come in case they repented, and God spared them, and then they would be able to attack Israel. So he tried to run away from God. How stupid is that? You can't do it, can you? And then, of course, the story describes how Jonah boarded a boat going west, the opposite direction to Nineveh, how God sent a violent storm, and how Jonah explained to the sailors that it it was his fault, he was the cause, and that they should throw him overboard. 
And as soon as they did, the storm ceased. Jonah cries out to God as he's drowning, and God saves him by providing what the Hebrew text calls a large fish, which swallowed him and then regurgitated him three days and three nights later. And now when God tells him to go to Nineveh, he obeys and he tells them, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. A nice short message, much shorter than mine today. And, surprise, surprise, the people of Nineveh believed the message, repented of their violent, evil ways, and God spared them. The rest of the story is not relevant for our purpose today. But we're still left, I think, with this question. What was the sign of Jonah? And how was Jesus similar to Jonah? One way to answer this question is to assume that Jonah explained to the people of Nineveh um, how and why he came to be preaching to, to them, the experience he'd gone through. Uh, he came, in, in effect, as someone who'd risen from the dead. <laughs> it's possible that his body even showed the, the signs of having spent three days uh, in this great fish's belly. Some people think, you know, he, he, the, the gastric juices will have made him look all white all over or something. But anyway, Jonah is a sign to these people and they are impressed by that. They listen to his message and, and they accept it. So Jesus is saying, I will become a sign like that to my generation by rising from the dead. And to confirm that that is the, that the main intention, the main meaning of this, we go to the parallel passage in Matthew, thank you, and there some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and, and, sorry, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here we are. Jesus compares Jonah's time in the belly of the huge fish to the period that he would be buried in the tomb. And the word that Matthew uses in, in his account is actually a sea monster. Um, and it could refer to any large sea creature, including whales. We, we don't rule out the possibility of a whale, or a bit of shark, or whatever. And the implication seems to be that the resurrection of Jesus would be the greatest and final sign of the truth of his teaching and of who he really was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Someone has said, Jesus' preaching will be attested by a deliverance like Jonah's, only still greater. Now, of course, if you're mathematically minded, you may have difficulties with this expression, three days and three nights, and I don't want to avoid it, you know? Because Jesus' body was not in the tomb any longer than about 36 hours. But, of course, that time did involve the parts of three days, and he rose from the dead on the third day. That's, that's, that's easy enough. More difficult is this three nights, because that just doesn't fit. But it does seem that according to Jewish tradition, three days and three nights doesn't need to mean more than a period during three days. 
any combination or part of those three days. It may be, it just means a short period of time even. Three days, three nights. Okay? And that's not the thing really to, 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 to fix up on. The important thing is the comparison isn't so much between Jonah and Jesus about the length of time that, that Jesus spent in the tomb, but it's that his deliverance from the tomb, from death, attested the trustworthiness of his message. This is the important thing. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that what he said was true. Now, of course, we know that the resurrected Jesus did not appear to all the people. Okay? Only to his own disciples. And yet he says, I'm, a, I'm going to be assigned to, my, to the whole generation. The other people came to believe through the testimony of eyewitnesses. Right? That's what you have beginning on the day of Pentecost. It's what, as Jesus said to Thomas, a week after Easter Sunday, today actually, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, and that could be us today. Some of, none of us have seen, at least I guess none of us have seen the risen Lord, but we've believed. We've believed on the testimony of those who did as it's recorded in, in the inspired scriptures. Now we come to what I've called two other lessons. First, Jesus talks about the Queen of the South, that is the Queen of Sheba in southern Arabia, and then he goes back to talk about the men of Nineveh. If you go to the Matthew passage, they're in a different order, which is interesting. Now I can't actually see any obvious connection between Solomon and Jonah, but Jesus sees one between the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh. Okay? So, what does it say? The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. We expect it, of course, to say someone greater than Solomon is here, don't we? But the point is that the comparison is between the wisdom of Solomon and the teaching of Jesus. Something greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Got it? Now, in case we're not familiar with this incident uh, that Jesus is referring to, I'm going to actually read the whole account from the book of Kings. Okay? So, we'll have that. Uh, that's him. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, not one of those, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked to him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he'd built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Now the Hebrew literally says, there was no more breath in her. In other words, it took her breath away. Huh? She said to the king, 
The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Fascinating incident from the history of Israel. Um, until recently, until very recently, uh, the lack of clear archaeological uh, or historical evidence for trading uh, or political connections between Judah and South Arabia has led some scholars to doubt the, 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 uh, the, the reliability of the biblical account. But now, very interesting, just recently, there's a study published in the Jerusalem Journal of Archaeology that suggests that a very small inscription from part of a pot um, from the excavations in Jerusalem may provide the proof. Uh, I can't go into any more details. Now, of course, those of us who are Bible believers, we don't need this archaeological proof, but it's very helpful when we're talking to people who are sceptical about the reliability of the Bible. So I, I refer you to it. So Jerusalem Journal of Archaeology, okay? Um, was, was Solomon really, or was Queen of Sheba? So here we have it. Go back to this next slide, thank you. That's lovely. The Queen of Sheba was prepared to travel a great distance to visit King Solomon because she wanted to see if he, if he was as wise as the reports she'd heard claimed. And so Jesus envisages the scene at the Last Judgment with the Queen of Sheba saying something like this to his contemporaries. You had someone greater and wiser among you, and yet you refused to listen to him, to accept his message, to believe in him, to follow him. You deserve God's condemnation. We have to pause, don't we? Could Jesus be saying something like that to us? You listen to the wisdom of the world? You base your life on the teachings of this or that guru? You follow the way that seems best to you? And all the time you're missing the wisdom that, that's found in Jesus. The one who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. When we reject the way that Jesus provides, we condemn ourselves. Not only to a life without God, but to an eternity without God. Isn't that terrifying? Should be. Finally, they're here, not quite finally, but don't worry. In, in this passage, uh, Jesus reverts to the men of Nineveh. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, again, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, it's the emphasis is on the preaching, on the message, not simply on the person, okay? This, he was someone greater, but he's, he was preaching something greater as, as well. And again, Jesus, as it were, is envisaging the final judgment. Uh, and uh, the men of Nineveh are saying to 
the contemporaries of Jesus, we repented when we heard the preaching of Jonah, but you didn't repent when you heard the preaching of Jesus, of someone greater than Jonah, whose message was greater. You deserve God's condemnation. It's very powerful stuff, isn't it? And again I ask, could Jesus say something similar to us? Uh, Is it possible that we've heard the gospel message? Uh, We've read the gospel records, perhaps? We've read the apostolic witness contained in the New Testament letters? We've probably heard preachers greater than Jonah, although not so successful, maybe. (laughs) His preaching was so successful, wasn't it? Boy, what a challenge. But the question is, we've heard all this, haven't we? So why haven't we repented? Is it possible? We've heard the gospel time and time again. We've read the scriptures. We haven't repented. We've, haven't, we, we've rejected God's offer of forgiveness. We, we, we've we've re- rejected his, his willingness to take us into his ca- family. We, we, we've not believed that Jesus died and rose again to bring us to God. We've just stayed away. Is that possible? Now this seems to be an appropriate moment for me to say a word or two about what the New Testament says about the final judgment. Not very much because of time. It's a popular view, especially in the West. Maybe even only a few in the West. Not not especially in the West, so I'll start that again if you don't mind. It's a popular view, perhaps only a few in the West, who believe in any kind of judgment after death. Life after death, judgment after death. But those who do, they they, they seem to assume that it will consist of assessing, God assessing, the good deeds and the bad deeds that that you've performed, and you just have to hope that your good deeds will outweigh your bad ones. I think that is still a popular view. Okay? The teaching of the New Testament, of course, is quite clear. No one is going to be saved, no one is going to have eternal life on the ground of their deeds, however good those deeds have been. The verdict of final condemnation will not depend on the badness or the goodness of a person's actions, but on how they responded to the way in which God revealed himself to them. If they've heard about Jesus, if they've heard about his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection, they will be condemned if they did not repent and believe. They've had a wonderful opportunity. Right? But if they haven't heard the good news of the gospel, and this is the question that everybody keeps asking, isn't it? It seems to me that the New Testament is saying they will be judged according to the evidence that has been made available to them, what they did without evidence. Opening two chapters of Romans, or the great white throne scene in, in, in Revelation 20, that seems to me is the implication. But we, sh- we don't need to be so worried in that sense about what, the, what about those who've never heard. What about us? Because yeah. we've heard. Yeah. Uh, that's about all I'm prepared to say about the Day of Judgment at the moment, um, you know, because of time, as it were. But uh, it's so important that we take seriously the judgment of God, that make sure that we have repented of our sins, that we have accepted the forgiveness that God offers us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I challenge all of us here this morning, are we actually sure we've done that? So important. 
And we have another slide now. Go back, yes. I want to return to verses 29 and 30 and consider the request for a sign. Do people today ask for a sign? Do they say, give me a sign and then I'll believe? I'll believe that God exists or I'll believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, there's one American preacher that I found who wrote this. Some people today want a scientific sign. I would believe in God if engraved upon the first moon rock picked up by Neil Armstrong were the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would believe if the genetic instructions of the complete DNA sequence somehow form the sentence, the Bible is inerrant in all its original manuscripts, then I'd take this book as holy and authoritative. And if the cloud formation from the first atomic bomb spelled out, repent and believe in Jesus, I would gladly do so. <laughs> now all that sounds to me a bit far-fetched, but quite honestly, perhaps, they, perhaps there are people in America like that. I'm not sure about here. Um, he even says, talks about people saying, if God changed the colour of my hair, I would believe. Well, I haven't got much of that, so I can't... <laughs> no, but the whole point is this. That uh, preacher, that American preacher, he's on much firmer ground when he says that people say things like, I will trust in Jesus if God cures this cancer. I'll trust in Jesus if he saves this unsavable marriage, this unsalvageable marriage, that sort of thing. That is more likely to be the sort of thing that people are going to say. The important thing is this. People ask for a sign. Some people still do ask for a sign. The, what Jesus, the implications of the passage that we're reading here where, where, God says, where Jesus says to his contemporaries, no sign but that of Jonah, is this, that God has already provided the evidence that means that if we reject it, we are without excuse. Okay? What Jesus provided for his generation, God has provided for us. According to Paul, again in, the, in the, that, that opening chapter of, of Romans, opening two chapters of Romans, the created universe and the human conscience leave us without excuse if we do not believe in and worship the creator God and do not acknowledge and obey his moral demands upon us. The evidence is there. And in addition to that, of course, both Paul and Peter assert God has demonstrated that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the only way of salvation, by raising him from the dead. This resurrection is such an important part of the Gospel message. Everything hangs on this. If Jesus did not rise again, then his death has no significance. He isn't who he claimed to be, and so on. We must Hang on to that. The apostolic witness to Jesus, to, to this crucial event, the resurrection, because that's what they, they preached more about the resurrection than they did about the cross in the opening chapters of Acts, uh, of course. Uh, now it is for us, we haven't got the apostles around, we've got the, the witness of the New Testament, the apostolic writings. And if we read those with an open, receptive mind, 
they will be validated by the Holy Spirit. We have all the evidence we need. We, we don't need to ask for any more evidence, any more science. The problem, of course, is that people are not prepared to change their lifestyle. The, the change that would be involved if they acknowledge the existence of God and the, and the truth about Jesus. Now, of course, there's no suggestion in this that God isn't prepared on occasions to give signs. I mean, after all, the Old Testament is actually full of signs that God gives to various people. He even gave one to King Ahaz when he didn't want it, you know? So God does give signs, but not on demand. That's the whole point of this. This wicked generation asks for a sign, demands a sign. I'm not going to believe until I get this sign, whatever it is. God in his mercy does, does do signs and wonders, such as miraculous healings. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes that, that, that brings people to belief. Sometimes it doesn't, because it's possible to discount miraculous healings and so on. The claim today of, of many, especially Muslims, that Jesus has appeared to them in a dream is a kind of sign, isn't it? Um, and again, it's not because people have demanded it. People have been seeking for God. And, and scripture is quite clear that, that that's what we should do. And if we do seek for God, he will reward. And he will reveal himself one way or another. And God, in his mercy, some people get a, a, a vision of Jesus. What they do with it, it's not automatic, is it? Even then. God has promised, Hebrews 11 verse 6, to reward those who diligently seek him. Okay, that's the promise. He may give you a sign, he may not. That's a long way from demanding a sign, actually. But you just seek him. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and you will find him. And I've got one last thought. Maybe the band would like to come up. A bit early, isn't it? I don't know. I have, I've said most of what I want to say. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Craig. I can't, can't do it. I haven't got the stamina you've got. <laughs> yeah. One last thought. If Jonah was a sign to the Nevites, and Jesus was a sign to his generation, shouldn't we be signs to our contemporaries? That's the last challenge I've got for us this morning from this passage. Shouldn't we be like stars shining in a dark night? A sign to people that it's possible to live a life of holiness and purity and righteousness, not because we're better than anyone else, but because God has saved us and given us his spirit. Yeah. Am I a sign to this generation, I ask myself? Am I a sign to my family members, to my work colleagues, to the people in my street, to the people I play games with or, or what I spend my leisure with? Am I a sign? Am I, am I a clear sign? Or is it all rather, rather fuzzy? Let's ask for help, shall we? 
to be clear, unambiguous signs to everyone around us of the power of God, saving power of God, and of the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this passage of your words. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus, which was relevant to his own contemporaries, but is still so relevant to us. Lord, if any of us are not clear about final judgment, if we're not clear about the fact that we shall have to give account of how we've lived our lives, just challenge us now. This is not being morbid, this is just being realistic. Lord, and if we're not understanding the gospel message, which really is so simple, that we just need to put our trust in Jesus, accept what he did on the cross, believe that he rose again uh, for our justification, and we can be accepted and part of your family. Lord, I pray that will be the experience of everyone here this morning. And as we go out from this place, help us, Lord, not to, to hide in any way, to, but to be clear signs of your saving power uh, over the penalty and the power of sin. Lord, help us, we pray, by your Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen.